You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, September 23rd, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, so you haven't caught COVID yet, does that mean you're a super dodger? From NPR News. And how to lower your cholesterol naturally from time. Plus, please don't cook chicken in NyQuil from NPR. And more time permitting. Here's our first report. So, you haven't caught COVID yet. Does that mean you're a super dodger? By Michaeline Duclef from NPR News. Back in the early 1990s, Nathaniel Landau was a young virologist just starting his career in HIV research. But he and his colleagues were already on the verge of a landmark breakthrough. Several labs around the world were hot on his team's tail. We were sleeping in the lab just to keep the work going day and night because there were many labs all racing against each other, Landau says. Of course, we wanted to be the first to do it. We were totally stressed out, he says. Other scientists had identified groups of people who appeared to be completely resistant to HIV. People who knew they had been exposed to HIV multiple times, mainly through unprotected sex, yet they clearly were not infected, Landau explains. And so the race was on to figure out why. Are these people just lucky, or did they really have a mutation in their genes that was protecting them from infection, he asks. Now, 25 years later, scientists all over the world are trying to answer the same question, but about a different virus, SARS-CoV-2. By this point in the pandemic, most Americans have had at least one bout of COVID. For children under age 18, more than 80% have been infected, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates. But just as with HIV, some people have been exposed multiple times but never had symptoms and never tested positive. We've heard countless anecdotes about nurses and healthcare workers being exposed without any protection and remaining negative over and over again, says pediatrician Jean-Laurent Casanova, who studies the genetics of viral resistance at Rockefeller University. Or people share a household with someone who's been coughing for a couple of weeks and one person stays negative, he says. So why haven't these people caught COVID? After two years of hunting, a team at the University of California, San Francisco, has come pretty close to answering the question. These findings are like hot off the presses, says immunogeneticist Jill Hollenbach, who led this research. We haven't published them yet. It's all stuff that's been happening this summer, she says. Hollenbach and her team have found a genetic mutation doesn't prevent the virus from infecting cells. That's what Landau was searching for but still does something remarkable. It prevents a person from having COVID symptoms. Turns out, stopping an infection altogether is an extremely tough nut for our bodies to crack. What does it take to be a true super dodger? Over the course of human history, scientists have identified only two instances of true virus super dodgers. That is, where a specific mutation in their genes makes people completely resistant to a virus, so that it slides off their cells 
like water sliding off a glass window, as Casanova puts it. In 2003, a team in London showed how some people never get a stomach bug called norovirus, which causes vomiting and diarrhea. The researchers found that one mutation in their genes prevents them from making a molecule the virus needs to infect the cell. In 1995, researchers in France figured out why some people appeared to never be infected with a species of malaria. However, over the past decade, further studies have clarified that these superdodgers actually do become infected with the parasite. They simply don't show symptoms. By far, the most famous virus superdodgers are people protected against HIV. The ones Landau and his colleagues were studying back in the early 1990s. In 1996, his team was getting really close to solving that puzzle. One morning, they found a huge clue. The night before, they had set up an experiment to test which molecules HIV needed to infect a human cell. The experiment garnered spectacular results. It showed that HIV didn't enter cells the way scientists had believed. Instead, it needed a little bit of extra help. Specifically, HIV needs a specific molecule, called CCR5, on the surface of the cell to open the door and let the virus enter, Landau says. Without CCR5, the virus only sticks to the cell's surface but can't enter. It's kind of like the virus is knocking at the door, but nobody's opening the door. The door is locked, he says. That was what we call a eureka moment, Landau says. That was the moment where we could say we found something that had never been seen before, he says. Landau and his colleagues rushed to the computer and wrote up the findings as quickly as possible. Then he literally ran to the FedEx store to submit the paper to the journal Nature, knowing that other teams were likely to have the same findings soon. In those days, you couldn't just submit your paper through the computer, he says. You had to mail a hard copy of it to the journal. And my job was to sprint over to the FedEx store so we could get the paper mailed on time, he says. Then, only a few short weeks later, Landau and his colleagues made another huge discovery and, in the process, solved the final piece of the HIV puzzle. We were quite amazed that it all happened so quickly, Landau says. In collaboration with a research group down the hall, Landau and his colleagues sequenced the CCR5 gene in two people completely resistant to HIV. Lo and behold, both people had the same mutation in the gene, and it's a powerful mutation. It completely cripples the molecule so that it doesn't appear on the cell's surface, the group reported in the journal Cell. Remember, without CCR5, HIV can't infect the cell. You can put as many virus particles as you want onto those cells, and they will not get infected, he says. So in the case of resistance to HIV, the story was very clear, he says. The finding completely shifted the field of HIV. It led to the first and only way to cure a person of HIV and suggested a new route, using gene editing with CRISPR. But it did something else. It showed scientists that one mutation could make a person completely resistant to an infection. One mutation in their genes could make them a true superdodger. So when SARS-CoV-2 came along, of course, many labs looked to see if the same might be true for this virus, Landau says. And inspired by the story of CCR5, 
they went looking for mutations in the genes required for SARS-CoV-2 to enter and infect cells. Are there really COVID superdodgers? For COVID superdodgers, the situation appears to be more complex than for people resistant to HIV, Landau says, because the way SARS-CoV-2 infects cells is different from that of HIV. Instead of using CCR5 to open the cell's door, SARS-CoV-2 uses the ACE2 receptor. People can't live without ACE2. The receptor regulates your blood pressure, Landau explains, so unlike CCR5, you can't simply knock out the ACE2 receptor, he says. You're not going to have many people walking around that don't have ACE2. Of course, there may be more subtle mutations in ACE2, which could play a role in resistance to SARS-CoV-2, he adds. But there doesn't seem to be an obvious and dramatic mutation, as is the case for HIV, he says. But perhaps what's more likely, he says, is that people have mutations in genes other than ACE2, and these mutations probably don't protect them from getting infected, per se, but do protect them from getting sick. So having one of these mutations would make you a sort of COVID mini-dodger, if you will. There are other ways to resist an infection besides denying the virus entrance into the cells, Landau explains, and they likely involve your body's immune system. That's exactly what the team at UCSF has found. Since the pandemic began, Jill Hollenbach and her colleagues at UCSF have been studying people who test positive for COVID but show no symptoms, not even a sniffle or a scratchy throat, she says. So they are entirely asymptomatic, she says. After analyzing DNA from more than 1,400 people, they identified a mutation that helps a person clear out SARS-CoV-2 so fast that their body doesn't have a chance to develop symptoms. The mutation occurs in a gene called HLA, which is critical during the earliest stages of infection. Hollenbach and her colleagues found that having a particular mutation in that gene increases a person's chance of being asymptomatic by almost 10 times. They reported those preliminary findings online last year. Since then, they've gone on to show how this mutation works, and it has to do with your immune system preparing for SARS-CoV-2 before the pandemic even began back in 2019. When viruses first enter cells, HLA signals to the immune system that cells are invaded and need help. That signal triggers a cascade of events that ultimately leads your body to make potent weapons specifically designed to fight SARS-CoV-2. These weapons include antibodies and T-cells that uniquely recognize pieces of this virus. Once these targeted weapons are available, your immune system has a much easier time clearing up the infection. But these weapons take time to manufacture, and that delay allows the infection to spread and symptoms to develop. But what if, for some lucky reason, your immune system already had weapons specifically targeted to SARS-CoV-2? This summer, Hollenbach and her colleagues demonstrated that, with a specific mutation in HLA, some people have T-cells that are already pre-programmed to recognize and fight off SARS-CoV-2. So there's no delay in generating COVID-specific weaponry. It's already there. Your immune response and these T-cells fire up much more quickly than in a person without the HLA mutation, Hollenbach says. 
So for lack of a better term, you basically nuke the infection before you even start to have symptoms, she says. But here's the kicker. For the HLA mutation to work and for you to have these pre-armed T-cells, you first had to have been infected with another coronavirus. Most of us have been exposed to some common cold coronavirus at some point in life, she explains, and we all generate T-cells to fight off these colds. But if you also have this mutation in your HLA, Hollenbach says, then just by mere luck, these T-cells you make can also fight off SARS-CoV-2. It's definitely luck, she says, but, you know, this mutation is quite common. We estimate that maybe 1 in 10 people have it. And in people who are asymptomatic, that rises to 1 in 5, she says. While Hollenbach and her team continue to look for more mini-Dodger genes, Casanova over at Rockefeller University and his colleagues are still trying to determine if there are true super-Dodger genes. And he's looking for participants right now for his study. You fill out a questionnaire online about your exposures to SARS-CoV-2, he says, and then if you meet the criteria of a super-dodger, the team sends you a testing kit. Basically, you spit in a cup and mail it back to Casanova and his collaborators. We'll extract your DNA and sequence your genome, he explains. We hope that in a group of 2,000 to 4,000 people, some people will have genetic mutations that tell us why they're resistant to infection, he says. And perhaps, like with HIV, that finding will one day shift the field of COVID research and lead to a vaccine that does what everyone wishes our current vaccines do, turn everyone into a COVID super dodger. Up next, how to lower your cholesterol naturally. Changes focusing on what and how you eat, as well as your exercise habits, matter most. By Markham Hyde from Time. In the years following World War II, physicians in the U.S. and Europe noticed a surprising phenomenon. Rates of heart attack and stroke fell dramatically in many places. Autopsies from this period also revealed reduced rates of atherosclerosis, which is a buildup of fatty arterial plaques that cause cardiovascular disease. At first, experts were perplexed. But as time passed, many concluded that wartime food deprivations and the forced shifts in people's diets, namely big reductions in the consumption of red meat and other animal products, contributed to the heart health improvements. Later work, particularly the famous Framingham Heart Study, helped establish that blood cholesterol levels, driven in large part by a person's diet, tended to overlap closely with cardiovascular disease. The idea that the foods a person eats could raise or lower their risks for unhealthy cholesterol levels and disease was, at first, a radical and controversial one. While there's ongoing debate about the relationship between red meat and poor health, the links connecting diet, cholesterol, and cardiovascular disease are beyond doubt. Cholesterol is a waxy compound that your body uses primarily to make hormones and to firm up the walls of cells. Our body needs some cholesterol for day-to-day -day functioning, but the amount our body needs is relatively small, says Dr. Lawrence Sperling, the founder and director of the Heart Disease Prevention Center at Emory University in Atlanta. Different parts of the body, including the brain and the blood, contain cholesterol. 
It's the oversupply of cholesterol in the blood, specifically, that causes problems, specifically low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, which is also known as bad cholesterol. Too much LDL in the arteries can form a fatty streak, which is the precursor of atherosclerotic plaque, explains Dr. Francine Welty, a cardiologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and former chair of the American Heart Association's Lipid Committee. LDL, therefore, is the primary building block of arterial plaque. The two main diseases associated with clogged arteries, coronary artery disease and cerebrovascular disease, are both among the top three causes of death worldwide. More than one in four deaths are caused by one of these two conditions, and managing or lowering your blood cholesterol levels is a proven way to prevent these diseases. Sperling says ideal or target cholesterol levels vary depending on a person's age, sex, and health status. But optimally, you want to keep your LDL cholesterol below 70 micrograms per deciliter. While drugs can help people get there, and in some cases may be necessary, he says that non-pharmacological approaches are just as important. Lifestyle and behavioral approaches are the foundation of cardiovascular prevention for all, he says. Here, experts detail the most impactful lifestyle changes to make to lower your cholesterol. A proper diet, they all agree, tops the list. How to eat to lower your cholesterol. One of the biggest trends in diet and nutrition advice is a movement away from talking about specific micronutrients and optimal daily servings of this or that food group. Instead, nutrition experts now talk a lot more about broad patterns of healthy eating. This means limiting certain foods while prioritizing others, rather than trying to hit narrow targets. Something I tell a lot of my patients is that the Greek derivation of diet is dieta, which means a way of life, Sperling says. Dieting shouldn't be torture or something you maintain for a month. It should be a meaningful and purposeful change you can extend throughout your life, he says. In this spirit, he says one of the most important changes you can make is to pack your meals with lots of fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, and whole grains. Many of the most effective and evidence-backed cholesterol-lowering eating plans, like the Mediterranean diet, prioritize these foods, he says. Meanwhile, reducing your intake of animal products, especially red meat and processed dairy foods, is a move that research has repeatedly tied to cholesterol improvements. I've run the lipid prevention clinic at my hospital for 31 years, and the first thing we tell people is to lower their intake of saturated fats, Welty says. She mentions red meat, butter, and dairy as foods people should aim to cut down on, not eliminate necessarily, but reduce if they want to improve their cholesterol. Many Americans consume saturated fats from eggs and dairy products to red meat with almost every meal. This sort of immoderation is a problem. The Japanese have some of the lowest rates of cardiovascular disease in the world, and that may be because they eat much less red meat and saturated fat than we do in America, Welty says. It's worth noting that saturated fat is a controversial topic in nutrition research. Some experts have argued that saturated fats get blamed for health problems that are likely caused by processed meats, refined carbohydrates like those found in sugary or packaged foods, and the trans fats in fast foods and some packaged snacks. Others have argued that if people avoid meat and dairy, 
but end up eating more processed or refined carbs, that's an unhealthy trade. On the other hand, experts generally agree that trading saturated fats for some of the healthy foods mentioned above, such as fruits, vegetables, and nuts, is a highly effective way to improve your cholesterol scores and heart health. If you decrease the saturated fat in your diet, that's one of the best ways to lower LDL, Welty says. She adds that protein-rich soy-based products, from tofu to soy milks and yogurts, may also be good substitutes for meat, butter, milk, and other conventional saturated fat sources. People in America are fixated on protein, but Americans don't really like to eat soy products, she says. This is unfortunate because research, stretching back several decades, has linked soy to improved heart health and lower blood cholesterol levels. If you need to replace saturated fats with other proteins, soy would be a good option, she says. Exchanging foods with hooves for foods with feathers or flippers is another good idea. Replacing red meat and pork with fish and chicken is something we often recommend, Welty says. In particular, fatty fish such as salmon, mackerel, and herring are heart-healthy choices. On the other hand, experts say fish oil, a popular health supplement, is not a helpful addition to your regimen. Fish oil does not lower bad cholesterol, says Dr. Leslie Cho, director of the Cleveland Clinic's Women's Cardiovascular Center. She says that some prescription fish oil supplements can help lower triglycerides, so doctors sometimes recommend them, but commercial fish oil supplements have been linked to an increased risk for abnormal heart rhythms and should be avoided. Last but not least, Cho says that getting plenty of fiber in your diet, something most Americans fail to do, is extremely important. Fiber can bind to dietary cholesterol and eliminate it from the body, she says. We want you to aim for 25 grams of soluble fiber per day, she says. This is possible if you're eating a lot of whole vegetables, fruits, and healthy whole grains like oatmeal or flaxseed. But supplements can also help you get there. Cho says ground psyllium seed, sold under the brand name Metamucil and also in less expensive but identical generic products, is a helpful source of soluble fiber that can reduce your LDL levels. Non-diet approaches to improving cholesterol. While lowering your LDL scores should be your primary focus, improving your levels of high-density lipoprotein, or HDL, cholesterol, also known as the good kind of cholesterol, is also important. HDL sucks cholesterol from blood vessels like a vacuum, Cho explains. Exercise is one way to pump up your HDL levels. It can raise your good cholesterol and also lower triglycerides, she says, another type of blood fat linked with cardiovascular problems. However, when it comes to the best type of exercise for your cholesterol, the research is all over the place. One review of studies published in 2020 in the journal Systematic Review found that yoga has the strongest evidence in favor of its cholesterol-improving benefits. While many other types of exercise are undeniably good for your heart and vascular system, and some, like swimming and cycling, have been found to reduce cholesterol, more research is needed to determine which are the best at shifting cholesterol scores. Some of Sperling's research has also examined the benefits of intermittent fasting on cholesterol levels. Intermittent fasting plans come in a lot of different forms, but one type, known as time-restricted eating, 
has generated a lot of promising research findings. Time-restricted feeding involves a daily fast, usually anywhere from 12 to 16 hours, while the rest of the day is open for normal eating. For example, you might eat lunch, dinner, and snacks between the hours of noon and 8 p.m., but the rest of the day you avoid all caloric foods and beverages. Time-restricted eating has been linked to significant weight loss, which often improves cholesterol scores, as well as lower LDL and total cholesterol. There are other ways to improve your cholesterol naturally, but focusing on what and how you eat, as well as your exercise habits, is what experts say matter most. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.